I have entitled the message, Oh, to see the glory of God, because I now know that's the intention of the whole chapter and the whole miracle. As you know, we've been making our way through John 11 all the way since we saw the positioning of the miracle, which was when Jesus had left Jerusalem and basically officially left his public ministry to spend the rest of the brief time that he had left on earth with his disciples. They were down in Jericho getting refreshed. And so down the windy road from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was about a two-day walk, came a messenger that announced the news that Lazarus, the one whom Jesus loved, was sick. And so the positioning was basically that he just got the message and it was left in his hands. The preparation for the miracle was basically found in the fact that he didn't do a thing about it from that moment, but he waited. And in the process, many, many hearts were being prepared. We've looked at that. We looked at the arrival and all that happened when he arrived. And specifically last time, we focused in on the passage in verse 33 where it says, Then therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping... And the Jews who came with her weeping, and now they're moving toward the tomb where Lazarus is, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He literally allowed himself to be troubled as God, as man, as totally God, totally man. In that mystery, we cannot understand. He allowed himself as human to be troubled, to feel the grief of full humanity in light of the fact that this was one of his best friends, and Jesus was a man who truly had only a couple of friends. He had almost no true friends in life. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And at that moment, Jesus wept. Literally, the Greek says that he quietly, involuntarily began to shed tears that just fell right down onto his grieving chest for this friend of his. And the whole thought here is that here is the humanity of Jesus Christ grieving for his friend, full-blown, total humanity. Right before we get to the miracle which shows full-blown, total Godhood, we see full humanity, and here is Jesus weeping. Thinking through Lazarus' friend dying, thinking through Lazarus calling out his name as he died, thinking through Lazarus' last breath as he suffocated and then his life went out of him. All these issues, this was one of his few friends and he loved him so dearly and there he just convulsively weeping silently looking on what has happened to his friend. That is the man side of him. He did it. On purpose, he allowed himself to go through that. And we need to see this. I want to reiterate it because in the Gospel of John, we focus so much on the deity of Jesus Christ. And in our Christian life, and even tonight in the message, we focus so much on the divinity or the deity of Jesus Christ that it's almost like in our thinking, we tend to think, well, yeah, I know he's man, but he's God. And we push the man side away and focus on the deity. But the importance of his humanity here is that he is fully human. He's weeping tears over the death of his 
friend, knowing the agony he went through, and he is going down into the very depths of every bit of grief we will ever experience. He is in full touch with our humanity, and thus when we come to the Bible and we read that he is able in every way to identify with us, we can be assured of that as we see him here weeping. He's not just weeping over the effects of sin, though that's there. He is not just weeping over their unbelief. These are tears for his friend. This is a human being who has chosen to remain a human being in heaven to be in full touch with us forever. And at the right hand of God right now intercedes knowing our deepest pains and sorrows and emptinesses right now interceding for us. And so it is a beautiful picture of Christ suffering for us. In fact, so he can relate to us at every point. In fact, Charles Spurgeon pointed out that it is love here that made him weep, that nothing else ever compelled him to tears. Think about that. When they whipped him, when they tortured him, when they tore the skin from his back, when they made him bear the part of his cross, when they nailed the spikes into his hands, when the insects began to bite into his wounds on the cross, when the vultures would have come to pluck the flesh from his body, when the people were mocking him emotionally, nowhere do we read that he cried like this. It was love that caused him to cry. Nothing they did to him physical. He wept over Jerusalem. Out of compassion, he weeps here out of love. I love that about our Savior. To see the depths of his love for us on a human level and on a Savior level. Now, if you would allow me, I want to put two thoughts into your head. I want to put them in now. I want you to have them all the way through the message. And when you go out that door and back out into your life, I want to carry these thoughts with you. Just two thoughts. One thought is this. Oh, forget it. It can't be done. Have you ever said that? Have you ever thought that? Many more times than you've said it. It is a part of all of us, isn't it? Oh, forget it. It can't be done. When the crisis has gone too far, when the problem is too big. The second thought I want to give you is this. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. I want to put those two thoughts in your head. Keep them there all the way through the message and keep them in your head when you leave. Oh, forget it. It can't be done. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Let's read through the passage. So now verse 37. Some of them said, Could not this man, this would be some of the Jews yet unconverted, probably some of the the professional mourners, some of the friends, and so on, unconverted Jews, some of them said, no doubt, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did not I say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying. I love the fact John keeps underlining that he really is dead. And he really was in there four days where the dead man was laying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. This passage is so rich that if you really and I really grab the flow of thought here and the meaning of it, it will affect every day of our life from now on. That's not an exaggeration. See, we finally come here in our outline of the chapter to the miracle. And the first thing I want to draw to your attention is in verse 37. Some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man here from dying? Some people have seen this as a sarcastic remark because, you know, there's so many like that that are sarcastic remarks. Like when they taunted him when he was on the cross and they said, if you really are the Christ, come off of the cross. You heal people, can't you take care of yourself? That was a mocking thing. Some have interpreted this that way. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? And yet, I don't see it that way. I think that what we have here is a question that is literally on the heart of every single person in that crowd. Often there will be a question on the hearts of everyone and only one or two have the nerve to say it out loud. That's exactly what I think is happening here. I think this is a perplexity that is caused by Christ. I think it's an honest perplexity. I think it is something that has taken place because of who he is, because of what he does, and because of his miraculous power. In other words, look, only days ago, he opened the eyes of a blind man who'd been born blind, the man had never seen in his life. Certainly, we've seen how much he loved this guy. We've seen him weep just now. Certainly, he could have saved him and kept him from dying. It is a genuine perplexity that is caused, please get this, simply by who Jesus is and what he does and how powerful he is. Jesus brings with him a certain amount of real perplexity in life just because of who he is. You cannot encounter Jesus in any way, shape, or form without coming away with some perplexity. You see, we have in this whole scene... As I told you before, Jesus is here. One of the big things he's doing in this miracle is he has already severed his relationship with the religious leaders, the chief priests. He has no more official public ministry in Jerusalem. That is over. The final time he goes to Jerusalem, he goes up, goes to the temple, has his triumphant entry, looks around, leaves, comes back the next day, cleanses the temple, and he's dead by the end of the week. That's, we're moving toward that now, but no more going up day by day and preaching in the temple and all of that. So the religious leaders now, they are completely perplexed by this man. They already have enough proof. They showed him, the last time he was there in the temple, they said, tell us plainly if you're the Christ. And he said, I already told you. Remember that? So as the religious leaders are viewing all of this, this is one last shot across the bow to them to say, you can reject me. But you cannot reject the reality that, that I am who I say I am. You can reject me as the Lord of your life, but you cannot deny that I am who I say I am. It is one last anchoring in of the truth of who he is. Thus, it leaves them with the perplexity of looking for a loophole. The loophole of how to kill him. How can we kill him and do it 
without being in trouble with the Romans. We know he is who he said he is, but we want to kill him anyway. So they're left looking for a loophole. W.C. Fields, before he died, was laying in bed, caught reading the Bible. Someone came in the room and they caught him reading the Bible, just pouring over the pages of Scripture. Astounded, they said to him, What in the world are you, of all people, doing reading the Bible? And he replied in his classic tone, Looking for loopholes. Looking for loopholes. You know what he meant. It's obvious who he is. It's obvious what he requires. It's obvious I have rejected. I'm looking for loopholes. That's it. They were perplexed and left only to look for loopholes. We know how they found it. We know the story of Judas and the corruption and all of that, the illegal trial in the night. The common Jew in the crowd, who would have been one that would have said, couldn't he have saved this man, seeing as how he opened even the eyes of the blind? That person is now left in contradistinction to the disciples who believe. The common Jew is now left saying, where is the legitimacy in this man? as our Messiah, as our King. Why doesn't he take us to freedom from the Roman Empire? In other words, the common Jew who still hasn't believed, they're perplexed for two reasons. One is their preconceived notions of the Messiah. The other is the constant heretical misguidance of their teachers, the chief priests and the scribes and Pharisees. So they're caught in a perplexity that is caused by these that want to kill him, who are their teachers, and by their own misguided preconceived notions of who he is, but they're still open. And what I love in this passage, if you look at verse 45, these people are mentioned. Verse 45 of John 11, it says, Many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. These who had come so far, almost up to the end, where he's gone, almost past the time where they could hear and believe and be saved, they believe right here. Their perplexity is answered right here in the raising of Lazarus. The perplexity of Mary and Martha is worth loving all this. And I suggest that this is a perplexity we all go through. Jesus, I follow you. Jesus, I gave my life to you. Jesus, you have allowed this crisis in my life and you've allowed it to get out of control. Where is the love in all of this? Ever been there? Some of you are there right now. Where is the love in all of this? You see, there is this genuine perplexity. It's honest. Mary and Martha, they love Jesus. They love their brother. They sent the note. Where's the love in letting him suffer and die? And then there's the disciples, and their perplexity is they get the note, they watch him wait, and they know there's a death threat, and they have Thomas to articulate what's in all of their hearts. Let's all go up and die then. He's gone, let's go, we'll all die. Mr. Pessimist, Mr. Love. So where's the logic in this? There's a warrant out for you. Your poster's all over town. You're on the most wanted list in Jerusalem. You want to go back to two miles from Jerusalem. Where is the logic in this? And where is the logic if you're going to go in waiting? And this is so critical to them because he's about to pass the baton to them. In other words, as you have this perplexity and we all go through it, there is so much that's real, it's honest, and there's so much that contributes to it. The great power of Jesus, his healings, his miracles contribute to our perplexity. The many conversions contribute to our perplexity when we see that 
loved ones we're praying for and witnessing to are not responding, that's perplexing to us. What seems to be the great deafness of God when we're crying the loudest is perplexing to us. What seems to be a great delay when we really need Him and the time comes and goes by, that's very perplexing to us. When we see what could be termed as a great distraction, it's difficult for us. What I mean by that is this. It's as if God is so busy working, blessing someone else, He's distracted from blessing you. That's perplexing. Lord, I'm crying out for you. My whole heart, my whole life is aching for you. I'm before you day and night. Where are you, Lord? I see you. You're right here. You're blessing my friend over here. And Lord, I see you blessing the socks off my buddy here. And, and I see you answering all the prayers of her. And, and man, they've got more money than they know what to do with. They're praying about what to do with all their money. How about a little my way, Lord? You're distracted, Lord. This is true, isn't it? These are real perplexities in our life. And they're very honest. And they are caused by Jesus Christ. They are caused by Him. So the first thing we see is this great perplexity caused by Christ. It is caused by Christ. If we can understand that and identify it, it'll loosen our hearts, I think, and move us in a healthy direction. The other thing that we see here, the next thing, is that here is the problem that is, quote, too big for Christ. We have found a problem too big for Christ. Here is a crisis gone to the stage, we could say, of no hope. Advanced through to the stage of absolutely no hope. And you might be right there today. But look at John eleven thirty eight. Then Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. They buried people. Generally, they had family tombs. And the typical average family tomb, if you have the money, would be six feet in, nine feet wide, ten feet high, You could fit eight family members in there, so they would carve into the sides three different levels for the bodies on these sides, and then straight ahead, six feet in, carve in another two. So walking into the tomb, three here, three here, two there. Then they would roll the stone in front of the tomb. If you go to the garden tomb today in Jerusalem, you can see the track right in front of the tomb, the empty tomb they believed to be the tomb of Christ, driving along the highway, On Mount Carmel, you can actually stop and look at a tomb and and see the stone there right in the track. You can look at it sideways right along and see how it rolls, and you get the picture. So here they are. It's a cave-type thing. Sometimes it's a natural cave. Sometimes it was carved out of the stone as the one Jesus was put in. But we read that Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha... Knee-jerk reaction here. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, it's almost like she grabs him by the elbow. Lord, by now there's a stench. Old King James, Lord, by now he stinketh, which I think is really good. They should just use that in all translations, modern or not. It's so good. By now he stinketh. He's been dead, Lord, four days, four days. Now, usually in that place, they buried people the day they died. Because of the weather and all, the bodies would decompose so quickly that they would bury them the day they died. The idea on all of their minds was how rapidly the decomposition set in. Jesus says, roll away the stone. Martha is rushing over and saying, forget it. 
Forget it. It can't be done. Let me tell you why. He's already decomposing. He already stinks. He's rotting. Lord, please. I know in the resurrection, you know, she'd already said, let's see him that way. I don't want to see him. I don't want to go in there. She's probably thinking, he just wants one last look to see his friend roll away the stone. I just want to go and see him. Oh, please don't. The worms should eat this flesh. Oh, please, Lord, maggots, everything. Don't, don't, don't. Leave the stone. It can't be done. The Egyptians, and the Jews were aware of this, the Egyptians believed that preservation of the body was necessary, and so they had a very sophisticated method of embalming the dead, and they believed it was attached to them having a secure body and life in the next life. So... They would go through and they would disembowel the person. They'd take their brain out. They'd take it out through a little tiny hole. They're a very sophisticated process. And they would take effectively everything out of the inside. And then they'd spend 70 days doing this to the point that they could have these great mummies, which you can go see in museums even to this day. And they still have their teeth. And they're really looking pretty good for being mummies. Got some hair and look like they got a little bit too sunburned and wrinkled a little bit, should have used 50 block, but, but my point is they went through 70 days to preserve the body, the Jews didn't do that, bury him right away and get him in because we know that that's not going to help anything anyway, so the Egyptians thought it would, the Jews knew it wouldn't, a lot of effort for nothing, Martha knew that, consequently this corpse is an insurmountable problem in her mind even for Jesus. There is one other thing that may have been in her mind, and I think it's good to point out because there's always these things floating around in our minds that contribute to us saying, forget it, it can't be done, God. And there was this Jewish tradition that a person's spirit floated around their body for about four days after they died, looking for a re-entry. But after four days, the decomposition would be so great that the face would be unrecognizable and thus the spirit would get all frightened and go off and not come back anymore. And so whether she believed that or not, and if that was an influence or not, it's four days, Lord, absolutely no hope. It is a hopeless situation. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. He's been dead four days. I would say that at this point, right here, is a need for what we could call a trilogy of trust. A trilogy of trust. When we get to the place in our lives where the crisis has worked its way through without any sign of God, to the point where it's hopeless, that we need a trilogy of trust. In other words, we need to understand God's will, God's timing, God's power. That is all that work here. And sometimes we just don't have all the insight to his will. Remember the night that they went up to the upper room to have the meal and the Passover and Jesus was washing the disciples' feet and he came along to Peter and Peter stood up and he said, absolutely not. I will not allow you to wash my feet. And Jesus said in John thirteen seven, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. You, don't, you can't understand this right now. Later you will. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. 
Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. So then Peter, Mr. Extreme, goes all the way in the other direction. Give me a full bath then, Lord. Don't just stop with the feet. Here we go. He didn't understand. There are times when God is working, we don't understand. We have to consider that in His will so often, we don't understand. Job was so clear in Job thirty-three thirteen. You read, why... Dost thou strive against him, for he gives no account of his matters. He doesn't always tell you what he's doing. And so when we start shouting, Lord, you've let things go too far. Lord, you, you didn't come. You didn't. You've been deaf. You've been distracted. You blessed everybody but me. We have to consider there's a lot of God's will that sometimes we just don't understand because it's tied to God's timing, because it's tied to God's power being manifested in a certain way for a certain purpose. And this all flows together with where we're going on from here. So the perplexity caused by Christ. And here's this problem, quote, too big for Christ. But then this promise given by Christ in John eleven forty, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Here is a promise. Didn't I say that if you would believe, you would You have my word on it. You would see the glory of God. What I want you to see here to begin with is that his promise went straight past her preoccupation, which is with the corpse, completely with the corpse. She was totally focused on the corpse. And if she stays like that, and he raises Lazarus from the dead, what's going to happen is this. She's going to go away and go, wow, that was incredible. Greatest miracle I've seen yet. And I got my brother back. And it'll begin and end with the end of story. Jesus knows that. Jesus is trying to part to her a lifetime solution. A lifetime solution to the endless problems and perplexities that come our way. He doesn't want her to just see the greatest miracle of all. And she's headed in that direction, totally preoccupied with the corpse. He doesn't want her to just see that. And his disciples are watching. And he doesn't want them to just go, wow, very Very cool. Lord, we've been with you all this time. This is the topper. We're going to have to talk about this one later, Lord. This is the best. No, he doesn't want them to just have that reaction. If you go back to verse 4 in the passage, when the message first came to Jesus, here's his concern for the disciples. And I want you to see this term come up again. It says here, They sent the message, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Verse 3, but then in verse 4, When Jesus heard that, he turns to his disciples. He says, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. So the moment he got the note, his first concern was that when this is all said and done, if the disciples didn't get a lot of it, one thing they wouldn't miss is the whole thing that's going to happen from this moment on is for the glory of God. I want you fellas to see God in this. So that when it's all done, when the greatest, because this is the greatest of all crises, that it's when it's all done, you will have learned this lesson to see God, to turn and look past all specifics, all hopelessness, up into the glory of God and let Him be God and watch for God to work as God. So he says to Martha... Didn't I tell you we'd see the glory of God? He said to the disciples, This is for the glory of God. 
One writer put it this way. Bless me so much. He said, notice Jesus didn't say, if you believe, I will do the miracle. If you just believe, I'll do the miracle. He didn't condition the miracle on her faith. Rather, he said if she believed him, she would see the glory of God. He went on to say this. There's a great distinction between the two. The sovereign act of Christ raising Lazarus would have happened whether Martha believed or not. But for her to see the glory of God in the miracle, she had to have faith in Christ. Now, she'd already been battling out faith and doubt and focusing her thoughts on the corpse, the crisis, rather than on Christ. But Christ said, in effect, this is the part I love so much, Christ said, in effect, in this miracle, Martha, I don't want you to just see a corpse resurrected. I want you to see the Son of God glorified. In other words, Martha, what you carry into this miracle is going to determine what you get out of it. Brethren, what we carry into our crisis, what we carry into our difficulty, what we carry into the phase and the stage when it becomes hopeless, in terms of what we believe about God, is going to determine what we're going to get out of that situation. There's a world of difference between the two. Oh, God was cool and faithfully came through. As opposed to, I'm coming into this and I'm looking for God. Oh, let me all the details, details, details. Fine enough details. Let's give God a chance. Stand back. Let's quiet ourselves before him. Let's be still in these days and know that he is God. You see the difference? It's a huge difference. We're so often so focused on the crisis instead of on Christ that we miss so much of God. His promise went well beyond her preoccupation. His promise concerned God's glory. Now, what is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? Didn't I tell you, if you believe, you'd see the glory. Well, what does that mean? He turns to the disciples. Everything that happens from here is going to be that you could see the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, the glory of God has to do with His attributes. It has to do with His attributes individually. God is love. That's the glory of God, isn't it? The glorious thing in the gospel is that it's a gospel of love. That's glorious, isn't it? God is holy. Isaiah 6, Isaiah in the temple, God revealing himself, his glory is shining. The angels that come in, they have six wings. With two they cover their eyes, with two they cover their feet, and with two they do fly. They're worshiping God with four of the wings, and with two they do the service. Always worship first, service second. But here's the glory of God. And what do the angels shout? Holy Love, mercy. No, they shout, holy, holy, holy. It's the only attribute shouted out three times, repeated three times, back to back in the Bible, the holiness of God. It includes really all of his attributes. But his holiness is glorious. His love is glorious. You see, individually his attributes are glorious. His long-suffering, which allowed you to be saved before the rapture has come. Think of that. That's glorious, isn't it? Thank God for that. That's glorious, isn't it? His attributes. What is the glory of God? It's His attributes individually. But further, it's His attributes collectively. I want you to see, Martha, the glory of God in all of this. I want you to see His attributes. How many attributes are there if we're going to add them up? The holiness of God, the self-existence, self-sufficiency, eternity, infinitude, and so on. There's at least 23. They really can't be numbered. 
this is incredible to me. What Jesus is saying to Martha and to the disciples is, I want you to come up into a relationship with God Almighty in His full-orbed glory. I want you to get past just seeing Him as a situational problem solver who's got a lot of power. I want you to come up to the place where you see Him in all of His glory. He's operating all the time as God in all of His attributes. He's everywhere at once, using all wisdom and all knowledge and all power everywhere at once, knowing all things and having all wisdom to guide what He does with the power in all things everywhere at once. According to His justice, according to His mercy, according to His love everywhere at once, knowing all things, having all wisdom and all long suffering. He's working, you see. He's trying to say that to them. You want to know why I waited? Because I'm long-suffering. You want to know why I waited? Because I'm all-wise. You want to know why I waited till it's past hope? Because I have all power. You want to know why I waited? Because it's past hope and all power? Because I do things according to my timing. You want to know why I waited to this point? Because I want to put my glory on display. I want to get past being just a miracle worker. I'm not a superstar. I'm God. I'm not a magician. I'm God. I'm not just a forgiver. I'm God. And I want you to come to know me like that and face every crisis in life looking up into the glory of God and waiting upon me as God. And if I'm a little late on your time clock, know that's because I'm God. And if I seem to have failed you, know that's because I'm mysterious in my will, that I don't tell you everything about everything I do. And so on. You understand? Oh, my. Didn't I tell you, Martha, if you believed, you'd see the glory of God. I'm so glad he said that. Because that's the way we begin to see him. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1.11, In whom we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things. After the counsel of his own will. And that we should be to the praise of his glory. Who have trusted Christ. And what comes out of this? I'll tell you what comes out of coming up into this kind of relationship with God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord working inside of us. Martha, didn't I tell you, if you believed, by now he stinks, Lord. Martha, stop. Don't rob yourself of what's coming here. And here's the disciples back on the side going, where's the logic in all of this? I can't believe it. Don't, I don't want to roll this stone. Do you want to roll this stone? Do you realize his stench? What if he tells one of us to go in and get him and bring him out? Are you going to, not me. I'll roll the stone then. You can see all this. Just totally preoccupied with all of the details and all the specifics and about to miss the glory of God. So he rivets their focus where it needs to be on him. And that is why we have this prayer of Christ because he's sweeping them right up into the presence of God. So in verse 41, Then they took the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. You can smell it, can't you? Here comes the stench. It's wafting out of the tomb. Because they're all crowded around there. And the stench comes wafting out of the tomb. So now they're all thinking, do it quick, whatever you're going to do. Let's close this thing up and get out of here. Instead, he stops. And he's looking up 
twinkling into the heavens. Oh my, what's he doing now? Well, he wants them to see the glory of God. So Jesus, he causes a lot of perplexity, doesn't he? So they took away the stone from the place where the man was lying. And I think he waited and, and did this on purpose as the stench is coming out. And he lifted up his eyes. And he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. Father, you and I, we have this oneness. We have always had it. But Father, because of these people who are standing by, like this, because of these people who are standing by, he said, I said this, why? That they may believe that you sent me, that the disciples would get past, where's the logic, and just let me be God. That these Jews who haven't yet believed will by the end of this day believe I'm God. And thus, it is for all of them that he prays this prayer. And many of them, we're told in verse 45, came to believe because of that. And so we come after the prayer of Christ, finally to the power of Christ. Verse 43, now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice. The Greek indicates as loud as you could possibly shout. He shouted and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Here he is, long after death, he raises him. This is what we could call a recreation resurrection. It's almost like it'd be easier just to do what God did with Adam in the beginning. You know, just get a whole new scoop of dirt, just start from scratch, because you've got to go all the way back through this whole thing, and it's a recreation resurrection. Now, the question comes up, why did he cry with a loud voice? Why a loud voice? And there's all kinds of speculation. I think, and I'll spare you all the explanations, I think, realistically, let's be practical. Lazarus has gone to paradise. Lazarus is with Abraham and with Moses, and it's just pleasant and wonderful. We know that from the account Jesus gave of the other Lazarus, who was a beggar who died and went to paradise, and from the wicked rich guy who was on the other side in torment. So we know Lazarus, we know where he is. He's just having the greatest time ever of his whole life. He's with Abraham and Isaac and all the great guys. And he's just in there having a great time. I don't think he's listening for any voice to call him back into that gooey body. That's the last thing on his mind. So I think realistically, realistically, he makes it really loud. So it won't be like, Lazarus, come forth. Uh, did you, did some, somebody calling me? Somebody want to talk to me around here? No, Lazarus! So that, whoo, whoa, Lazarus! To the point that he recognizes the voice. Full attention instantly. Lazarus, come forth and... I'm back in the tomb again. And I think loud. So that rather than... No! It's Jesus who brought me back because he recognized his voice. Just as Mary, when he rose from the dead, didn't recognize him until he said, Mary. And then and, and Rabboni, he recognized the voice. So he suddenly, boom, he's back. And he stands up, comes hopping out. See, they didn't wrap up the bodies like mummies 
They would wrap the leg, wrap the other leg, wrap the hands, the arms, then finally a separate thing around the face. So he's able to come out like this. So he comes out. And Jesus says, loose him and let him go. You do it. No, you do it. No, I'm afraid just to pull that thing off his face, please. You do it. I'll get the arms. No, I'll get the arms. I'd love to get... Can you imagine? So they run over, then unwind him. And Lazarus is probably going, just somebody, anybody, unwind me. So here it is. It's the most incredible miracle. What I love about it is that Jesus, he includes his disciples in it. He could have said, everybody stand back, stone, roll, now. And the stone could have likened an electric gate, just gone, kung, he could have taken it just as watch this. You ever seen a frisbee? Watch what I do this stone. You know? It's going to arc around like a boomerang and come back and break on that mountain. He could have done anything, but why did he include them? Why did he say take away the stone? Why did he say lose him and let him go? He could have just said, watch what I do with these claws. This is going to amaze all of you. All that stuff sticking it together, the ointment, the perfume, the different things, the spices, is sticking it together. Just watch how I unwrap him. This is going to be the coolest thing yet. Almost better than what's happened so far. He could have done all that. Why does he say you roll away the stone and you lose him? Because God has chosen, Jesus has chosen in his divine work and his power to use us. He uses his followers. Now, they could not raise Lazarus from the dead, but they could roll the stone. They could not bring Lazarus back to life, but they could unwrap him. And he wanted them to have the thrill of saying, I rolled the stone away when he did it. I unwrapped him. I saw those brand new eyes, and I've never seen eyes lit up like those eyes. I unwrapped his hand, and I've never had a handshake like that when he grabbed my hands, and I'm back. You know, and they went out of there with this personal testimony of the glory of God that was absolutely life-changing. And it stayed with them the rest of their life. And it strengthened them to the point where they were willing to die for this one who was the resurrection and the life. The wisdom of God, He has chosen to use us. And if you want to know what I think the analogy is of all of this, I think the analogy is that we are told, take away the stone. Go out and preach the gospel. It rolls away the stone and it lets people out of their death, as it were, in this world. Then we are told, loose them and let them go. Make disciples of all men. Give them the truth that sets them free. God has chosen. He alone can quicken the dead. He alone can bring to life a soul that is dead. But we can preach. We can roll away the stone. And we can loose. We can say, did you know the Bible says this? Did you know the Bible says this? And the Bible, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. But now that I know and now that I have Him, I'm free. I'll live differently. And so we are given the same charge and the same honor to be used by Him. Now I want to end up by applying this, this idea that He, long after the death of Lazarus, raised Him. And He did it with a recreation resurrection. I want to just make a practical application of it. He is doing that again and again in our lives. He did it there and he is still doing it. You see, we know he has the ability to give life before death. We see it in his healings. We see 
he quickens Jairus' daughter as soon as she died. We see him right after death. He raises the widow's son at Nain from the dead. But we see him here wait till long after death. It is a recreation resurrection. And what I want to say is that this is our God. This is the glory of our God. This is God working on His timetable and His attributes, doing everything, orchestrating it all together for His glory and His will, working all things after the counsel of His own will. And we will see Him in our lives raised from the dead after long dead different areas of our lives, ministries, relationships, and so on. You look at Peter, the night that Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. And he said, I never will, I won't, I won't. And Jesus said, you will, you will, you will. You'll do it three times. And there Peter becomes the denier. This great confessor of Christ is now the denier on that night. We don't know where he went after that night. But we find then later on the beach, Jesus grilling up some hot coals. They caught some fish and they come to the shore. And Jesus recommissions him. And then he says, now go wait for power from heaven on high. And on the day of Pentecost, he's filled with power from heaven. And the denier becomes the defender. Preaches the first grand, glorious, defending public sermon. And many are saved. You see that ministry kind of died and came back. Recreated, resurrected. And you see it again and again. You see it with Joseph. He is sold as a slave. He's the administrator in the house of Potiphar. He at least has a decent, basically free life as a slave. And he's seeking God and God is with him. Suddenly he's thrown into prison. That whole life as administrator dies. And for a long, long time he's in prison. One guy comes in, he helps him, he gets out. Guys come in, he helps him, they get out. And he's still there. But the next thing you know, God recreates this life of Joseph and resurrects this administrator guy and he puts him right on the throne next to Pharaoh. He lives again as an administrator, only on a much higher level and suddenly he's running all of Egypt at just the time the famine comes to wipe out the people that are chosen of God for whom he will bring the Messiah to save the whole world. It's awesome. You see, if you only believe, you see the glory of God. I look at John Mark... Barnabas, Silas, and Paul standing on the road, going off on a missionary journey, and Barnabas is adamant that John Mark would come, and Paul says, absolutely not. He bailed out on the last missionary journey. We can't afford to have that kind of lack of loyalty and devotion and fortitude and backbone spiritually on this particular mission. He can't come. Barnabas gets upset. It's like, give the guy a chance. Paul says, absolutely not. Him and Silas take off. And a new partnership is formed. A new life is formed for Silas. And Barnabas takes off with John Mark. And John Mark's, effectively, that ministry with Paul dies at that point. And it dies because of his unfaithfulness. And so does the ministry of the team, the greatest evangelistic team known yet in the world, died at that moment, Barnabas and Paul. But a whole new life was born for Barnabas as he was assigned to John Mark. And the great thing is that Barnabas and Silas go into a whole new dimension. Paul goes on doing what he does. And the years roll by. And at the end of his life, when he's about to face execution, he's asking for John Mark, of all people. He said, please get him here. Please. He is so helpful to me. I love that guy so much. You see there had come a full-blown recreation, resurrection of that relationship. I want him here with me. I'm lonely. 
this guy that he couldn't tolerate to have with him because of the wonderful work of a glorious God he wants. Well, don't you love it? This is the God we serve. This is the God we serve. Forget it. He can't do it. It's gone too far. Past death. Oh, but if you only believe, you will see the glory of God. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we love you so much, Lord. Oh, God, we want to see your glory. We join with the cry of Moses, God, I've seen so much, but I want to see your glory. And Lord, we thank you for this great and grand passage and all that we have learned here. Now, Lord, in our lives, in our difficulties, in our crisis, may we take our focus off the details, our preoccupation off the details, and put our eyes up onto Almighty God and look for your glory and let you be God working your way in your time according to your power and wisdom and insight and all your attributes and come to know you in a way we never have before. May this be a turning point for all of us, Lord, where we begin now to face the difficulties of life totally different, to draw back, to wait, and to be still and to look up from our knees and to know that you will be glorified in your way as God and may we know the peace that passes understanding as a result and the joy unspeakable that comes not from the outside but from your spirit on the inside that joy that will be our strength in those times and then may the communion of the Holy Spirit go with us Lord who has come to testify of our glorious Christ and we will give you God our Father all the glory as you bring these things to pass, for we ask it knowing it is your will and it will be done. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.